I'm not going to really be talking about conscious capitalism today. I'm going to be talking about conscious leadership. And you're all MBA students and faculty members, so I'm going to give you a different perspective on leadership. That's my goal here, to get you to think about it a little bit differently. I, I, I think so oftentimes uh, at business school, the best you can get is kind of a theory of leadership. And oftentimes by, uh, well, academics who maybe didn't actually ever be in business. They don't, they don't actually necessarily have that type of experience. So I'm going to give you a, a little bit different perspective than you normally get. But I've got to set it up by at least talking a little bit about conscious capitalism. There are four tenets to it, higher purpose, stakeholder integration, leadership, and culture. So I'm going to be talking about the green qua uh, quadrant down here, conscious leadership. But I need to talk a little bit about purpose because I think it's the thing that's so misunderstood. If you, if you go to a cocktail party and you ask people, try this, it's fun. What is the purpose of business? The answer you normally get is a quizzical look. Well, what do you mean what's the purpose of business? Everybody knows the purpose of business. The purpose of business is to make money, right? But that's such an odd answer. If you ask what the purpose of a doctor is, doctors are very well compensated. Some of the highest compensated people in our society. But I have yet to have a doctor tell me their, their purpose is to make money. The doctors heal people. Teachers educate. Architects design buildings. Engineers construct things. Why is business put in this narrative that it's only about the money? When in fact, business is the greatest value creator in the world. Business creates far more value than government and all the nonprofits put together. It creates value for all of its stakeholders, its customers, its employees, its suppliers, its investors, the communities it's part of. It's a tremendous creator of value. And that value creation, one way or another, is the key or the, or the bridge to understanding what any particular higher purpose of a business is. And that is defined not by economists, not by the government, not by lawyers, not by journalists. Ultimately, the purpose of a business is defined by those who create the business, the entrepreneurs, who usually fueled by some type of dream or passion to create something in the world, they themselves may not have made explicit yet what their purpose is or why they're doing it, but they know they're driven by something. And it's that drive that causes them to create the business and manifest the purpose. Just like an artist, when they paint, may not always have a sense of what the purpose is or what they're actually trying to create when they start out. Or a musician that's creating music. It's emergent. It emerges as they create it. Hence, entrepreneurs oftentimes create businesses that emerge as they create them, and the purpose evolves along with it. If you think about the businesses that you most admire, I submit every one of them has some type of higher purpose. Great enterprises have great purposes. And since this is not about conscious capitalism, I'm going to be kind of quick here. So Plato identified the good, the true, and the beautiful as the highest ideals that humanity could aspire to. I submit that many businesses whether conscious or not, are motivated by a desire to create the good. Any type of service uh, business, I would argue, 
probably that uh, this university and this business school could very arguably be uh, uh, motivated by a higher purpose of creating the good, improving the health, education, quality of life, and communication. Uh, the true. What does the true have to do with business? Well, I mean, think of an institution like Google. Clearly, I mean, uh, the, the founders of, of Google, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, would say their higher purpose is to basically take all the information in the world and make it readily accessible. And as Larry Page said, he said, how can that purpose not get you excited? Indeed. Take Ed was, I was talking to Ed earlier, was talking about how, yeah, Google's made all this stupid sports arguments uh, pointless now. You can argue with somebody about how many home runs somebody hit, and you can look it up on Google, and the other guy's proven to be wrong very quickly. The beautiful excellence and the creation of beauty. Again, what does it have to do with business? You know, I would say that beauty is so intrinsic to human beings that we need beauty. Our souls need beauty the way that our bodies need protein and carbohydrates and micronutrients of all kinds. It's when, we're, when our lives are devoid of beauty, we're not so healthy. Beauty nourishes us, and business has responsibility to create beautiful things. And many businesses are motivated specifically to create beauty in the world. I would argue Apple is a good example of a company that creates insanely great technology that is beautiful. Uh, Warren Buffett's uh, Berkshire Hathaway, a guy you would not think is, Berkshire Hathaway is made investing into something quite beautiful as you study his work. And finally, the heroic, the courage to do what is right, to change and improve our world. Sort of an heroic approach to it. So again, Google has this higher purpose, organizing the world's information and making it easily accessible. And Google now is the highest valued company in the world, having passed Apple up. So clearly, in their pursuit of this purpose, it's paid off handsomely for their shareholders. I know because I've been a long-time Google shareholder, one of my smarter investments. Uh, I put Whole Foods Market in here, our higher purpose to improve the health of people, the food system, and the planet. That wasn't our highest purpose when we started the business. I got asked that question earlier today. What was your high purpose when you started out? It was like, earn a living? Uh, no, it was, uh, we wanted to sell healthy food, earn enough money to support ourselves, and have a lot of fun doing it. That was our initial higher purpose. And that purpose is still within Whole Foods, but it has con it's continued to evolve over time. So anyway, with purpose in the background, stakeholders in mind, the importance of culture, let's focus on leadership, conscious leadership. So some of the qualities and virtues that we've identified that conscious leaders generally have, I talked about purpose for a good reason. Conscious leaders tend to be very purpose-driven. They tend to be authentic. They show up as they really are. They're service-oriented. They have a greater capacity for love and care. They're more emotionally intelligent. They're more spiritually evolved. And they have high integrity. Or some continuum of these things, since it's hard to find a leader that's got all those things at a very highly developed uh, level. But conscious leaders tend to aspire to manifest these virtues. 
So one of the things that we've learned is that humanity has different kinds of intelligences. The type of intelligence that's going to be honed in a school like Darden, and indeed it's, it's an important intelligence, is what you could call analytical intelligence or cognitive intelligence. Basically, the ability to think rationally. Now you have to understand, most people throughout history have not been able to think rationally. To be able to think rationally is a tremendous skill that you have to work at. It's not that easy to think clearly. I call it like in business, having a high analytical intelligence and leadership is like the ante to get into the poker game. If you don't have it, you can't sit at the table and play. You've got to be pretty smart or you have no chance. But it's today not nearly enough. It's what our schools are pretty good at training, but I tell you that it's not enough. If you want to be a really effective leader, you're going to have to develop these other kinds of intelligences. And one of the problems with analytical intelligence, if you think about it, one of the best examples, what, what's this, the class that we teach in uh, first-year medical students all take? They all take gross anatomy, right? They get this cadaver, and they spend the semester kind of carving it up, and they learn where the blood vessels are, and this is where the spleen is, and this is the pancreas, and this is the gallbladder. And they divide it all up. They get to know all the names. They analyze it by taking it apart, right? So analytical intelligence, in a way, is comparing and contrasting this or that. It's the kind of intelligence that leads to what you could also call trade-off thinking. If this is happening, then that must not be happening, or that cause causes this. Um, and it's, again, a very fine intelligence. I don't want to belittle it. I merely want to point out that you will not understand health or how to heal people by carving up a cadaver. It needs a different kind of intelligence to begin to really understand healing. And I would say that's systems intelligence. The ability to see how everything fits together in patterns. And, well, stakeholder theory is a great example of systems intelligence. Because in order to really understand Stakeholder theory, you have to have a systems mind. You have to be able to see the interdependencies that these different types of stakeholders have with one another. You have to see how it fits together. And if you're going to be an effective leader, increasingly in the 21st century, it's so complex that unless you can see the system and begin to work with the system, to manage the system, you've you're not going to be very effectual. In fact, you may be actually very damaging because you'll be making these terrible decisions. You're trading off some interest against some other interest, and the result, you're sub-optimizing. Emotional intelligence. I have found at Whole Foods that a better predictor of someone's success in our company, without a doubt, is emotional intelligence. And... Um, Daniel Goleman, in his books on emotional intelligence, identify basically two parts to it. One is interpersonal intelligence, or understanding yourself, self-awareness. Uh, it's actually most people do not understand themselves very well. That's a simple fact. Most people don't have a clue what emotions they're experiencing. They can't even identify the emotion, let alone understand what's causing it. 
They don't understand uh, 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 what motivates them, what's driving us to do what we do, what we're striving for, what our goals are, what we care about. These are all types of self-awareness that we need to gain. And it's on a continuum. I mean, I am more self-aware today than I was five years ago, and I was more self-aware five years ago than I was ten years ago. And hopefully, five years from now, I'm, I'm still hopefully going up the curve instead of down the curve, but uh, hopefully I have enough self-awareness to realize when I'm going the other direction. But that's the first part. Second, understanding others. Uh, empathy, interpersonal intelligence. Now, generally, people score very high on one, don't necessarily score very high on the other. But emotional intelligence is the combination of these two. Uh, what I have found that the most effective leaders at Whole Foods Market, I mean, increasingly in any kind of structure where there's a lot of relationships, where there's teams, where there's communication, this type of intelligence is absolutely critical if you're going to be effective. In fact, uh, I like to tell the story that the greatest entrepreneur of my generation, without question, was Steve Jobs, a guy who had remarkably low emotional intelligence, uh, based on having read his biography by Walter Isaacson. And yet, the guy was an incredibly effective entrepreneur. And because I think at the end of the day, Jobs was so charismatic that he was able to attract people on the team that compensated for his great uh, uh, lack of, of, uh, of uh, communication skills and empathy with other people. But that doesn't necessarily mean somebody like Steve Jobs is somebody to emulate unless you're as big a genius as he is. <laughs> Let's talk about spiritual intelligence. This is always kind of gets people a little shake. What do you mean spiritual intelligence? Are you talking about religion? No, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about, first, a person with high spiritual intelligence is able to discern purpose. To a person with high spiritual intelligence, the world is full of purpose. It's everywhere. It's the kind of the opposite of the existentialism that says there is no purpose. It's like, what do you mean there's no purpose? There's purpose is everywhere. You can see it. I can feel it. I can taste it. It's... The world is just rippling with it. There's so much purpose, I can't even deal with it sometimes. It's massive. I never can understand people can despair their meaninglessness when it's, the universe is so full of meaning and purpose. Secondly, high, highly developed ethics is a reflection of well-developed spiritual intelligence, a strong sense of what is right and what is wrong and knowing it. Knowing when you're getting close to crossing a line and not crossing it. That is a type of spiritual intelligence. Third, the ability to love and care and have compassion. That's, you could say that's emotional intelligence. No, I'm saying it's spiritual intelligence. The capacity to love is a spiritual unfolding of our inner being. We all have the capacity to love, but mostly we, I'm going to talk more about love later on, mostly we close it up. We keep it inside. We contract it because we're afraid of it. And yet, Spiritual intelligence means compassion. Think about the people that have been the greatest world movers, people like a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King or a Nelson Mandela. These people had remarkable spiritual intelligence, especially love, care, compassion. 
And finally, I would say it's a type of spiritual intelligence to be able to create and express the good, the true, and the beautiful. Those type of human ideals, to be able to grasp them, to be able to express them and share them, I think is a mark of spiritual intelligence. Again, I have found that at the most senior levels of a company, this is where cognitive intelligence begins to leave behind. Emotional intelligence can get you so far. But spiritual intelligence is what you're going to need to guide a really uh, uh, an organization and help it get through the difficult times that we now find in the 21st century. So let's talk a little bit about what a conscious leader does. This is one way to understand them. Well, a conscious leader becomes a servant leader. What is a servant leader? Servant leader is someone who basically puts the higher purpose of the organization first. Now, a typical corporate leader in America today is mostly putting themselves first. It's all about they struggle their whole career to get up the ladder to get to be the CEO. Now they're like 55 years old and they're going to have to retire in 10 years or less. So they want to make as much money as they can possibly make in that window. Lots of stock options, lots of restricted stock, huge salaries, huge bonuses. The board is in league with them as long as the board's getting paid off as well. And that's not servant leadership. Servant leadership is putting the organization or the mission first. So we know some great spiritual leaders, I mean some great servant leaders throughout history. People like, well Gandhi was a great servant leader to be sure, but also Albert Schweitzer, an amazing guy. And I'll just tell you one story because most people here are too young to remember this guy. But a remarkable servant leader in the 20th century was a man named Buckminster Fuller. Just curious, how many people, you might have heard his name, how many people know something about Buckminster Fuller? That's what I thought, not that many, of course. Uh, Bucky, as he was called, is, it's a very remarkable story and also a great example of evolving spiritual intelligence. When he was 32 years old, he just about killed himself. He was in a deep, deep depression, was drinking heavily, had lost his job, was unemployed. His daughter had died from polio and spinal meningitis, and he felt guilty about it because she lived in a crummy place that was drafty and not a good place for a child to be living. So he felt guilty and blamed himself for the death. And he just thought his life was totally meaningless. There was no purpose to it. He had a life insurance policy, and he figured out that the guy he was worth more dead than alive. And about the time he'd made the decision and resolved to kill himself, he had an amazing sort of spiritual awakening, sort of a, a, an awakening of spiritual intelligence, because an idea popped in his head. And the idea was, what if I, instead of killing myself, I devoted my life to service? What if I did as much good? What if I found out how much good one person can do if that person devoted themselves to that, to doing good in the world. And that was it. His, he found his purpose in life. He was completely animated from that point, point onward. So how much good can one person do? Well, from that point onward, Bucky Fuller created 28 patents and wrote over 30 books. He had a massive impact in a number of different areas. And... Uh, it was all because he had that spiritual experience of nearly killing himself, but then awakening to the possibilities of what he could do if he devoted himself to service. Schweitzer at one point, I don't have the quote quite right, but he basically said, 
You will never know true happiness until you know how to truly serve others. That he thought that was the key to joy and happiness. So a conscious leader is going to create a shared purpose. So I talked about uh, the importance of purpose. I talked about how um, uh, spiritual intelligence involves discerning higher purpose. But a good conscious leader is able to share that purpose, get others to see it and share it. Oftentimes in the early days of Whole Foods, I would, I would talk about, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. We're going to change the, the whole food system of America. We're going to change that. And it's going to take us a long time, but I'm completely convinced that America is going to, is going to wake up. And uh, you want to do it too? It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. And <laughs> lots of people did want to do that. Lots of people joined. That, that was a, a very uh, important siren song that people responded to. So creating that shared purpose is one of the things that a conscious leader is going to do. So a conscious leader is not here to maintain the status quo. Conscious leaders, they're disruptors. They want to make the world better in some type of significant way. That means that they are going to inspire other people and they're going to mobilize energy. In mobilizing that energy, they're going to have to create workplaces that have purpose and meaning and have high energy. This is such a good quote. I'm going to read it. The best organizations are ones in which the leaders walk the talk and reveal the meaning in each person's task. People are invigorated by their work and feel a sense of balance and completeness, a sense of effectiveness and competency, a sense of autonomy, initiative, belonging, and creativity. I mean... Gosh, if, if you could just get this, then I don't have to even talk anymore. We can all just go home and you guys will all be rich and change the world. This, is, this is, kind of catches a lot of it in the essence of it. So a conscious leader is also going to help people to grow and evolve. You know, it's interesting. Back when the whole human potentials movement got kicking in like Esalen back in the 60s, it was critiqued by the, uh, the social activists, hated it, because they just saw it as narcissism. Books were written about it. Narcissism, all these people do is they go into these encounter groups and they talk to each other about their emotions and their problems. Well, that's so narcissistic, so selfish. They're not making any real difference in the world. And it's pretty interesting because now what we've discovered as we get further along and we get into this year 2016, is that in fact, it's a responsibility of a leader to evolve. It's not narcissism, it's quite the opposite. It's an act of service, because the more awake you are, the more conscious you are, the more caring and loving and purposeful you are, the bigger impact you will have on other people. And part of your job, part of your impact, is to help other people to grow and evolve. Hey, that's why I showed up here. That's part of my job description here for you guys today. I'm going to share what I can to help people in this room to grow and evolve, to help develop your leadership potential. And when I'm working with people that I'm, I'm close to that work at Whole Foods, I'm trying to grok out, intuit, learn what their special gifts are. Everyone has special gifts. What are their unique talents? 
And how can we take those unique talents and let those be expressed in a way that helps our whole organization be better? It also means unleashing creativity. Human beings have unlimited creativity. For all the problems we have in this world, we have the creativity to solve them. And through collaboration, we can iterate, share ideas, and we can accelerate the solving of those problems. So this is a big idea, I think, big idea from Ed and the whole stakeholder movement. I always like to say that if you think in terms of trade-offs and the analytical intelligence that we started off talking about always thinks in terms of trade-offs. If you think in terms of trade-offs, then if you look for them, you'll find them because there's always trade-offs that, that you can see and you can say, well, that's inevitable. There's going to be a trade-off there. However, when you look for win-win strategies, when you want all the parties involved in a trade to win, then guess what? You find win-win-win solutions. If you look for it, you will find it. If you don't look for it, you will not probably find it. So a conscious leader creates these win-win strategies, and uh, a whole new world opens up of possibilities. You know, as you build a business, or as you go through business, there's always going to be what I call the tough ethical choices. And the tough ethical choices, by the way, are not between clearly right and clearly wrong. Those are the easy ethical choices. The tough ones are between right and more right, or creating those solutions that allow everybody to win, 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 where nobody loses, where you structure it in such a way that um, in ways that you couldn't even imagine initially, you find these solutions to these tough ethical dilemmas that you face. And the conscious leader is not going to shirk that. They're not going to run away from it. They're not going to pass the buck. They're going to face it. Be the love that you want to see in the world. I cannot emphasize this enough. Love is the thing that is mostly missing from corporate America. It is, it is the single most important virtue, emotion, value. And it's what I say mostly in the corporate closet. It's hidden. Why? Because people are afraid of love. A, they think that this is a tough world. The metaphors, think about the metaphors we use in business. They're, they're mostly either sports metaphors, yep, uh, or war metaphors. I'm gonna kill those guys. Yeah, let's roll. Or they're Darwinian metaphors. Survival of the fittest. Only the paranoid survive. Kill or be killed. I will survive at all costs. And if that means killing others, or hurting others, so be it. These type of metaphors have dominated the corporate vernacular for a long time. Well, there's no place in that structure of reality, that narrative for love. Love is seen as weakness. Love is seen as something that holds back potential. So it's hidden away in the corporate closet because it is a dangerous competitive world out there and if we do the whole love thing, then we're just gonna get crushed. We're gonna get run over. 
But if we want love and enterprises, love is not weak. Love is incredibly strong. Love is the glue that holds your social group, your team, your enterprise. That one purpose is what holds it together. It's what creates the loyalty that keeps organizations together. It's why I've been working with the same leadership for God knows how long now. We're all getting, getting old together. And it's because we've had this great unleashing of love. And if we want to have love in our enterprises, then first we must embody it within ourselves. We must be the example. We must be the change that we wish to see in the world. So if we want to create and release love, we have to begin to deal with fear because fear is the great killer of love. Fear is the great limitation on love. And fear is how most organizations still are run. They're still fear-based. They still try to intimidate people. They make them afraid. I mean, we know the General Electric uh, uh, philosophy of fire the 10 worst, 10% uh, of the worst people every year, uh, which I would argue creates a fear in an organization, fear that you're going to be in that 10%. Um, so we will have to deal with fear in our organization. One of the things I oftentimes hear when I hear people say, I like going into your stores, they feel good. I just like being there. It feels good. Ever thought about why it feels good? Because the team members at Whole Foods aren't afraid. They're just not afraid. And so they can be themselves. They can be authentic. We let them be themselves. We let them be authentic. And so what you're experiencing is that when you release, when you allow authenticity and remove the fear, love is what bubbles up. And so that's what you're experiencing, I think. And we're not perfect, and we still have fearful people, and we still have bullies, and we're hardly perfect by any means. I'm certainly far, far from it myself personally. But in a general rule, our organizations have been able to unleash a lot more love than most other organizations. Something else we can do, since we have to be the love we wish to see, when you're, it's when you're being tested the most, when you're under challenge, that's the most temptation you have to contract away from it. But that's when you should actually open wider, open your heart wider. And something we do at Whole Foods, we end all of our meetings. This is a great little uh, something I would urge everybody in this auditorium to experiment with sometime. And that is, end your meetings with appreciations. They're voluntary. You don't have to do it. But it's amazing what happens when appreciations happen because they're a complete psychotechnology for releasing and unleashing love. Uh, so it, we do it at every every level at Whole Foods, every meeting, and all the way up to the board of directors meetings. That was the toughest one for me to get to do it. But uh, that domino did fall, and uh, the last domino, I call it. In any case, um, the, the, it's hard to dislike somebody if, if Mary just did a great appreciation for you, to the whole group. It's kind of like, you know, maybe I misjudged Mary. <laughs> Mary's, you know, she's really, she's got a lot of stuff going for her. I like her. She's good. I like her. So you move away from that judgment to, uh, to appreciating someone when they're appreciating you. But also, when, the biggest benefic uh, beneficiary from appreciations is the person doing the appreciating themselves. It's impossible to do an authentic appreciation without opening your heart. You can't do it. Try it. Nobody will believe it. It's not genuine. But an authentic appreciation is always coming from the heart and is always releasing and expressing love. So it has a transformative effect. Okay, so 
how do we, this is all great, John, this is great, but how do we get there? How do we make ourselves more conscious? How do we grow in emotional intelligence? How do we grow in spiritual intelligence? How do we do all these things? Well, here's the thing. You have to work at it, and it isn't easy. You have to dedicate yourself to wanting to grow in these areas. Otherwise, some of it will happen through the hard school of hard knocks of life that come your way, um, but it's not automatic. It's, hey, you're starting to go to your high school reunions or college reunions, and the interesting thing is, because I've, I've, I've been all the way up to my 40th high school reunion, and it's fascinating because some people are exactly the same way they were in high school. They've been absolutely no difference. It's amazing. And others are these incredibly interesting uh, people that have just, you know, just rocketed up there. And it's like you're just kind of amazed to be in their presence because they're such interesting people. Some developed themselves and some chose not to for whatever reasons. I like this quote by Kastenbaum. We have reached such explosive levels of freedom that we are now in charge of our own mutation. You're in charge at this point. You're adults. If you want to grow and reach your highest potential in life, mommy and daddy aren't going to do it. Darden's not going to do it. You're going to have to do it. Gandhi said it well. Worth repeating, we must be the change we wish to see in the world. We will not create a planet of love until we ourselves are expressing it. I talked about it before with emotions, but this is the starting point. Know thyself. You cannot have emotional intelligence or a very high degree of it without it. You can't understand your emotions. You can't understand your purpose. You can hardly understand anything until you begin to know yourself. And you do that by spending time with yourself, asking yourself when you're having an emotion, what does this mean? Where did this come from? Why do I feel this way? What is it? When, emotions are like windows into our souls. Windows into our souls. Follow an emotion back, and you will learn something very, very valuable about yourself. Follow your heart. So this one's such a big one. I'm going to tell you a story, a personal story about me that completely changed my life. This was back when I was like 19, it was either 19 or 20, studying philosophy at the University of Texas having to read some massively boring textbook that was a required textbook that I had to read if I was going to get, I was going to have to f- read and finish and get tested on if I was going to get my degree. So I didn't want to read it. It was boring. I didn't like it. I really just didn't like it. I didn't want to read it. I was just in rebellion against the idea that I had to read this book. But then I would think, well, if I don't read this book, I'm not going to get a degree. I'm not going to be able to do all these other things. So I should really force myself to read it. No, I don't want to read it. I hate this book. This guy's an idiot. I don't want to read this book. Well, John, you have to read this book if you're going to get your degree. Don't you want to get a degree? Then you can do other things. I don't want to read this book. So I'm having this big argument about myself. And then what I realized is that I, in my deep being of my part of my soul, I just did not want to read this book. I was not going to read this damn book. I stood up and I threw the book on the ground. And, I, and, and as soon as I did it, I felt this, you know, I just felt really like liberated. I like made some massive decision here in my life. I had no idea. I was only 19 or 20 years old. The next day I dropped the course. And that was liberating. I don't, I, I, 
I can't graduate without that course, at least not in philosophy. I got to take that course. Yeah, who cares? I'm not taking that course then. And then I started dropping courses. This, this the professors here are not going to like this. I, I started dropping courses. And, I, and from that point onward, I never took another class that I didn't personally interested in, none. And I have never read a book since then that I didn't want to read. This was the beginning of me following my own heart. And after that, I dropped out of school. I moved into this vegetarian co-op. I learned how to cook. I became a vegetarian. I met Renee. We started Whole Foods Market. I think it was because I threw that dang textbook down on the ground. <laughs> Who knows how I might. I probably had ended up a professor uh, at Darden, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> no, I probably would never have gotten tenure. I'm afraid I never would have... Uh, uh, would have passed the muster. But follow your heart. And what I tell you is that whatever that might be, what you don't realize when you're young, you don't realize how quickly the time goes. You really don't. Because you've only been young, for one thing. And it seems like there's, the world's very sensible. There's young people like me, and there's old people. And I'm one of the young people. I, I got a good break here. Uh, but time eats us all up. There's only so much time. It's a great equalizer. And so life is so short. And it's so short, you should not do anything less than being true to yourself and following your heart, following your passion, whatever that might be, and trust that that will lead you in a wise way. It, and I can't guarantee it. No guarantees here. It has for me. It has for other people. I think it probably will for you as well. But uh, no refunds here. So I found this interesting philosophy as a way to think about one of the possible purposes of life. Life is about learning and growing. It means being willing to take chances and to make mistakes and to fail. Those are some of the best learning opportunities we have. But without a doubt, the best learning opportunity you will ever have in life are your close relationships. I have learned more from the people I've been in love with than everything else combined. Because those are the people that will tell you the truth about yourself. Those are the people that will do it, hopefully, with a loving heart and help you to see things about yourself that you're unwilling to see. So your friends, your family, your significant others, these are your great teachers, if you will allow them to be. It's the greatest possible growth that you will ever have is through relationship. So I encourage you not to fear the depth and intimacy that relationships bring if you view it, yes, you are vulnerable. Yes, you can be hurt. And yes, that's your greatest opportunity to learn and grow. Um, one of the early lessons I learned in life that's helped me so much in business and, uh, is forgiveness. Forgiveness releases you from being trapped in anger. And it's like you're angry at somebody, it's like you're drinking a poison that you'd like to give to that person you're angry with or hate, but they're not drinking it, they don't know anything about it. You're drinking your own poison, and it makes you sick, literally. It sickens in soul, sickens in body, sickens in mind. Forgiveness is important, and it's a strategy you can develop, and you can practice. And uh, I just cannot urge you enough to say that if you can really truly learn forgiveness, there's, I would say there's two things you need to know to be happy in life. Uh, you need to learn how to forgive, and you need to learn how to be grateful. Because when you're grateful, 
When you wake up every day and you're just so grateful to be alive, and you see the beauty that's around you, and you see all these amazing people that are, that are beautiful and wonderful, how can you not be happy? It's just uh, essential. So forgiveness. Finally, there's a little exercise that I sometimes practice, and you can try this one. This is a very interesting one. This is an old Buddhist exercise, which is most of the time we go around in our egos thinking we're pretty much smarter than everybody else we see, more awake, more enlightened, better in every way, uh, and uh, that's just a really, that, you can't really grow when you're trapped in your ego like that. So imagine for a moment spending an entire day where everyone you interact with is enlightened. Everyone is enlightened but you. And they are only there to help you to wake up and become more enlightened. That's their goal, is to help you wake up and become more enlightened. That's a very interesting exercise for a couple of reasons if you practice it. First of all, when you treat people as if they were enlightened, guess what happens? They start acting that way. It's incredible. It's incredible. And secondly, that means when somebody cuts you off in traffic, they're doing that for your own good. Wow. They're trying to get me to wake up. That, thank you. And that means every time in every situation there's a lesson for you. There's an opportunity for you to learn and grow from that person. Because for at least for that day or that hour, you have left your ego behind. And you're now in the beginner's state. You're in the beginner's mind. And you're going to be able to listen and learn and grow. It's easy. You can try it. Just try it. It's fun. It's fun to do that for a whole day. It's hard, but it's really fun. So. One of the things I've learned is that as we evolve our consciousness, as we wake more up, it tends to go in stages. And one of the things that prevents people from going to stages and moving up are being stuck in some kind of ideology. An ideology, whatever it might be, we use it as kind of a shortcut. But in, to, to, to frame up the world, right, it's kind of like a mental model of the world. But on the other hand, the ideology is like a filter that prevents things getting into us. It keeps, it, it acts as a barrier or a shelter or something that we use to hide. We hide in an ideology because within it we feel safe, we have a community of other people that share the ide ideology, and yet we're now in stasis. We're not learning, we're not growing, we're not evolving. That ideology is preventing our growth. So if any of you are into some kind of ideological trip, whatever it might be, just understand that it may not be serving you if your goal is to grow. Well, when Renee and I left the co-op and started the business, I had not taken any business classes. I was 25, Renee was 21. We didn't know anything, nothing. Nothing of real value in business. But I was very fortunate that I did have lots of role models, people that I admired, and I also had an incredible mentor. In my case, it was my father. My father had been an accounting professor at Rice until they kicked him out because he only had an MBA, not a PhD, despite winning many teaching awards. But that was actually a good thing for my dad because then he went into, he got hired by his, some of his clients, and he went on and he became a CEO of a fairly large hospital management company, a public company. And uh, so, although I knew nothing about business, my father knew a lot. 
So when we started up Saferway and then Whole Foods, he was, the guy, he was my go-to guy. Every time I had a question or a problem or something I didn't understand. Now, meanwhile, I'm reading literally hundreds of business books. I went through this. I'm a rapacious reader, and then I just focused it on business for several years. And uh, you know, everything Peter Drucker I ever read, wrote, I read multiple times. Everything else I could get my hands on that I thought might help me and help Whole Foods. But better than all of that was my dad as my mentor. And uh, I'm sure I would have wrecked Whole Foods multiple times. So my dad kept me from driving the car off the, the side of the road, or right, driving her off the cliff. And what's interesting about this and why I'm telling you this story is there also comes a time when you have to let your mentor go. If you're gonna, that can also be a crutch. It can also hold you back. In this case, this was back in 1994, 22 years ago now. I was 40 years old. And uh, Whole Foods had gone public in 1992. And my father now found himself wealthier than he ever thought possible, because he'd been one of the original investors. And uh, well, he was at a different place in his life cycle, and he did not want to lose what he then had. So he became increasingly conservative. Whereas I had, I had to conquer the world. Whole Foods, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna grow this thing. And he said, I don't think we ought to grow that fast. We got a good little business here. Let's just kind of milk it. I said, Dad, we're not going to milk it. This is all about changing the food system. We're going we're to open these doors up everywhere. That's kind of reckless, son. I don't think we ought to be doing that. So my dad and I started having these big fights, big fights, including at board meetings. We'd be screaming at each other. And our, and our father, whole father-son relationship was starting to uh, was not looking so good. And I did not know what to do about it because I really loved my father. I knew he was a wise man. And... Uh, but at the same time, I, my heart was telling me that we really needed to grow Whole Foods. It's really what I wanted to do. It's what I was passionate about. So the hardest thing I ever did in business was the day I fired my father. Fired him as my mentor, fired him from the board, and said, the mentorship is over, Dad. I'm 40 years old. I know what I'm doing. I'm moving forward. He says, you barely have your nose under the tent, son. And I said, nevertheless, we're moving forward and we're going to grow Whole Foods Market. My advice, Dad, is to do the following thing. Sell half of your stock sometime this week. Keep half of it in case I'm right. That gives you all the financial security you need. Keep the other half in case I'm right. And Whole Foods is going to be a lot bigger than you can possibly imagine. Well, he did that. He sold half his stock and he had his financial security needed for the rest of his life. And uh, he kept the other half, which gave him a lot more financial security. <laughs> so moral of the story, mentors help accelerate our growth, as do coaches. But there can come a time in your own journey where you have to leave it behind. Besides relationships, your best opportunity to grow in, in life and business is when a crisis hits you. A crisis when it's beyond your skill set when you are like overwhelmed. Now when that happens, the natural human reaction is to contract, to go back to a safe space, a place where you know you can be successful and where you kind of go back to, you sort of, a, uh, what's that word I'm looking for? When you, uh, can't think of it, but that's the wrong strategy. You do not 
go back, do not contract. A crisis is actually a way to grow. It's a way to open wider. And even though it's hard and it's painful, it's your greatest opportunity. So I've had many crises through the years, and, and the, the, probably the biggest one I ever had was back in 2007. And I'll tell you this story. How are we doing for time here? Uh, what time do we? Oh, you're not going to hear this story. Too bad. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, uh, very abbreviated story, hassled by the FTC, hassled by the SEC, we're trying to block our merger with Wild Oats. I'm angry at the FTC for bullying our executives, and uh, I wrote a blistering blog about that treatment. They had gotten my, all my emails, because they downloaded my computer, found out that I had been posting on a screen name on Yahoo bulletin boards for uh, eight years, and then outed me to the Wall Street Journal, which made a front page news of it. Next thing I know, the, F the SEC is doing an investigation of me. My board has suspended me. For the next eight months, I did nothing but talk to attorneys. It was a nightmare. And of course, I hadn't done anything wrong. It's legal in the United States to post on a bulletin board. Uh, but it, it uh, was a crisis. It was, it was beyond my ability to cope with it. And at the end of the day, I did lots of different things. Uh, and I had some, I would say, significant sort of spiritual awakenings. And the biggest one was I had to get complete 100% integrity in my life. That was kind of the takeaway from this, is that as soon as I, and I had to commit to not having any big secrets that could hurt Whole Foods markets, that I had to be willing to step up and go to the next level. And when I made this commitment to do that, everything cleared up just like that. It was, it was quite interesting, and if I had more time, I'd give you the whole long story about it. But we're about out of time. So some of the stuff that can help you learn and grow is you have to, even as busy as you are, you have to take time aside to do certain types of self-awareness exercises. These are all good ones. I've done them all. Yoga, affirmations, meditation, visualization, breathing exercises, prayer, tai chi. All of these are a chance for you to settle in let this deeper part of yourself emerge and for you to learn from it. Timeless wisdom. Here's an interesting thought. Just like we poison our bodies with junk food, you ever thought about the fact that we poison our minds with junk information? We do. It's so easy today on the internet. We can spend hours just wasting time and uh, uh, we should fill our minds. We, we live in this time where almost all the greatest wisdom in the history of humanity is available to us. We can spend time with brilliant people, the most brilliant people that have ever lived. We can spend time with them and fill our minds with their ideas and their thoughts. We don't need to fill it up with junk. And it's virtually free. Take advantage of that opportunity. So ultimately, all this personal growth stuff I'm talking about, ultimately it's a choice. The greatest challenge you'll ever have as a leader is leading yourself. If you can lead yourself effectively, then you are fit to lead other people. It's amazing how many people out there, including some presidential candidates, who cannot lead themselves, but somehow or another feel that they are qualified to lead America. God help us. Um, <laughs> this is also our greatest opportunity for service. And the rewards for that service, I think, are almost unlimited. So, First, we must become more conscious. And then, as we awaken, we share our wisdom 
with our organizations and with the larger society. That is the hero's journey. And I invite you, and that's why I've done this talk today, I'm inviting you to join me on that hero's journey of greater awakening, sharing your wisdom with others. So I'm going to finish with this quote from Lynn Twist. Those of us alive today have the opportunity to lead the most meaningful lives that have ever been lived. Our challenges are great, but so is our entrepreneurial creativity. We have all the tools that we need. We just need to unleash human innovation and creativity on our challenges. There are no problems that we are incapable of solving. You have the power to be a conscious leader. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Is this, we, um, we have time for a couple questions if you're... Uh, I have time, but I don't ever... Great. Uh, we understand we're a little bit go. over, so feel free to head out if you need, but we'll take one or two questions. Um, wait for a microphone, we'll walk it to you so that we can um, get the recording okay. We'll start here and then go to the one in the middle. Yes, good evening. Thank you very much for uh, speaking to us. I know uh, if everyone else is with me, it's very inspirational. Uh, my question is regarding the, the cost of food. Uh, I know that it's very expensive to source food uh, responsibly the way that you do, uh, but I imagine that you have some goal to make it available to more of the population uh, by lowering the price. Um, you know, what are the first steps in that direction, and do you see that uh, in the future? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're starting a new brand called 365, which is going to be basically sort of like a discounted Whole Foods market. You take the best elements of Trader Joe's, uh, Sprouts Farmer's Markets, and Whole Foods, and that's what 365 is going to be like. Our first store opens in two months in, uh, in, in the L.A. area. But so we are, and we're, and we're going to be lowering prices at Whole Foods as well. Competition is forcing us to, forcing us to cut costs, forcing us to lower prices and forcing us to differentiate further. So we're going to do those things. But I do want to say one thing that, um, I mean, here are the facts. The facts are that 100 years ago, we spent almost 40, 50% of our income on food. Today, we spend less than 8%. And that includes going out to eat. Food has never been less expensive than it is today. And yet, 69% of Americans are overweight, 36% are obese. We do, we, 40% of the people die from heart attacks. No one should ever get that's a dietary disease, or strokes, or cancer, diet, lifestyle disease as well. And we have the ability. It's like we could, we could read the best books in the world, but we read garbage. We could eat the healthiest food in the world, but we eat junk. And we're spending so little money on food. You could eat nothing but organic, and maybe the, if all we went with ate was organic, then maybe it go from 8% to 12%. That's a lot lower. Even in the 1960s, we were still spending 25% of our income on food. So it's a matter of choice. I mean, price isn't the only thing that matters. Quality and health are also important values. But I do hear you, and Whole Foods is going to do its part to lower the price of natural and organic foods going forward. Next question. Thank you for an interesting talk about being a conscious leader, but Despite I'm personally sharing the same ideas, I'm a little bit suspicious about how you want to apply that. So basically, we have a lot of people who 
are in their mid-career, like majority are going for corporate world. Mm -hmm. How how do you see the application of that in a corporate setup when you have tons of different restrictions, society outside, and the whole American corporate world, which is very pushy in terms of the rules and is very determined in terms of the money? I have great faith in your uh, intelligence and your creativity. Those are, that's a challenge. I, I, uh, I was incapable of working for a big corporation. I never, I've been fired, I'm certain. Uh, too outspoken and uh, too much following my own destiny. But um, I mean, there's two solutions. One, don't work for one of those companies. Or B, if you're going to work for it, then see yourself as a, uh, a transformational agent that you can help. You know, even if it's just transforming, helping transform yourself and the people close to you and the people around you, everybody can make a difference. If you're a conscious leader, you'll make a difference wherever you show up. And you will rise. You will rise in your organization because people will sense your, your higher spiritual and emotional intelligence. They'll see that you think win-win. You'll be a pleasant person to be around. Uh, I'm not saying it's easy. It's hard. It's very, do you think doing this stuff's easy? It's really hard. It takes great concentration and work to be more conscious. And that's why most people aren't more conscious. They're lazy. They don't want to pay the price. They don't want to do the work. I'm just saying it's worth it. I'm trying to, and if I can inspire a few people in this room, maybe 20 years from now, someone will say, you know, Mr. Mackey, I was at Darden, and you gave that speak on conscious leadership and changed my destiny, and uh, they've got some great story to share. So I'm, I, that's the kind of payoff I'm looking for. Somebody to come up to me in maybe not 20 years, but 10 or 15 years, and <laughs> tell me how it all worked out for you. We have one more over here. One more question? There's a microphone coming down the other aisle. Um, hi, so my question is actually about your leadership model. And I know you talk about creativity a lot, and I was curious if it falls in like the spiritual intelligence or why there wasn't like a section that had creativity, where it fits in. Uh, hmm. Well, uh, I mean, Creativity fits everywhere. I mean, we're inherently creative beings. Look at children. They're just in these imaginary creative worlds playing all that. Play is nothing but creativity, right? And we are creative beings. It's just essence of who we are. So I think it fits into all the intelligences. I don't think their creativity doesn't fit neatly into a box. So uh, I do think creating a... A good organization is one that allows a great deal of creative flow. Uh, in fact, increasingly in the 21st century, if you don't have a creative organization, you just can't, you can't keep up, you can't compete. In technology in particular, you're just going to get swept away. Food retailing still, it's being disrupted rapidly, but it's still not the most creative people in the world are not competing against Whole Foods Market yet, thank goodness. Okay, thanks so much, everybody. Bye.